everybody. This is Ellen Weatherford. And Ellen. I'm Christian. <laughs> Where did that come from? You've never done that before. <laughs> this is going to be a fun one. <laughs> you want to try that again? Yes. Okay. You know how sometimes <laughs> when people are married, envelopes will be addressed to like Mrs. Christian Weatherford. This is the reverse of that. All right, let's hear it. And Christian Weatherford. <laughs> and this is just the zoo of us, your favorite animal review podcast. Each animal that we review, we rate out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. So Christian and I are not zoological experts, but we do a lot of research to make sure that we're bringing you good, reliable information about the animals that we're talking about. Not including our our first names. <laughs> forgot to take notes on my name. <laughs> you forgot to put that in your Google Doc, huh? It's just like our teachers told us. Always put your name at the top. Mm-hmm. This is why. <laughs> <laughs> and last time you and I reviewed some animals, I went first. And typically we kind of go back and forth between going first and not going first. But this Otherwise week, known as going second. That's another... <laughs> Another name people know that by. (laughs) But this week, as I understand, you have some challenging content for us today. Yep. So I think I should go first. I disagree, but I respect it. Do you really want to go first? No, that's fine. Okay. (laughs) Because I have something that's a little bit more of a crowd pleaser. Okay. This might be a little bit more of an ease in to the animal content. We could start with something cute and cuddly and then work our way up to your particular... Uh, brand. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Okay. This week, I will be reviewing the Malayan tapir. Oh, okay. Your voice kind of brightened up. You sounded excited about that. Is this the kind that we see at the zoo? Yes. Oh, very cool. We used to have one at the Jacksonville Zoo. I don't think it's there anymore, though. Oh, okay. Scientific name is Tapirus indicus. Uh, the species was submitted via email by Rachel Bachman. Thank you, Rachel. And I'm getting my information from Animal Diversity Web, as well as the San Diego Zoo. Very cool. Yeah. So if you've never seen a tapir, specifically a Malayan tapir, they're pretty big, right? Mm-hmm. They're up to two to two and a half meters, which is six to eight feet long, um, and up to four feet tall. So like, I don't know what, hip waist level, maybe? It's pretty big. It's a big, big guy. Like bear size. Yeah. They're between 250 and 320 kilograms or 550 and 710 pounds. Although some adults have been recorded weighing up to a whopping 540 kilograms or 1,190 pounds. Big. Big one. And by the way, the females are bigger than the males. Oh, okay. Big mama. (laughs) Love her. So you're going to find them in low elevation rainforests in Southeastern Asia, Sumatra in Indonesia, as well as the Malaysian Peninsula, Myanmar, and Thailand. Mm. Yeah. And low altitude areas. You're not going to find them up in the mountains. They're down in the rainforests. Okay. In like low, closer to sea level. Now, the taxonomic family is Tapiridae, and there are four genetically distinct living species of tapir could be five, depending on what do you consider a species, what's mm-hmm. distinct, you know, what's not. Four or five, I don't know. I'm not the authority on that. <laughs> um, but there's basically, there's a few different types of tapir. But this one, the Malayan tapir, is the only one that is found in the Eastern Hemisphere. All the rest of them are found 
over here on our hemisphere, typically in Central and South America. Yeah, that's where I was thinking we would be going, mm-hmm. even though its name would indicate otherwise. Literally has it in the name, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but you're right that like tapirs typically live in like Central and South America, mm-hmm. but they're more kind of look more like boars almost. They have that sort of like bristly dark brown hair. Right. Whereas the Malayan tapir is the one that has really, really short, smooth hair. And it looks, it has almost a panda coloration. Mm. So they're mostly black, but they have this white midsection that goes like over their back and tummy and kind of down onto their butt. Other than that, they have like black front, black back, but like white in the middle. So they look kind of like a giant panda. Yeah. Um, But all the other ones that live over in like this hemisphere of the world, they're more all black or dark brown and like kind of more fluffy. I think the Malayan tapirs are cuter, but we'll get into that later. (laughs) This one is also the largest tapir. The rest of them are a lot smaller and they like to go up in the mountains more. Um, So this, they're a little bit more agile, I think. They're made for like going up, like climbing up the hillsides and going up the mountains and stuff like that. Now, the name tapir actually comes from the Tupi language, which was spoken by indigenous people in Brazil. Okay. Yeah. So that name actually comes from Brazil, even though in English, we use it to refer also to the one that lives in Asia. Okay. So what are tapirs? You have seen them in the zoo. Yeah. If you've never seen one before, they look kind of like pigs. You know? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So they have that kind of like barrel-shaped body. They have this snout with a trunk that is kind of like an elephant's trunk, but it's really short. It ends like just past the chin. They have kind of piggy ears. So like the, the tall pointy ears, not big floppy ears like elephants. They also have toes with kind of like hoof-like claws on the ends. Hmm. It's kind of a funky looking foot. They have kind of like hippo feet elephant noses, pig bodies. They like kind of look like a hodgepodge of a lot of different animals. They're actually not related to any of those things. Really? <laughs> They're odd-toed ungulates. Oh, uh, okay. This is the first time we have ever talked about an odd-toed ungulate on this show. Huh. Do you have an example of another odd-toed one? Yes, I do. Okay. So I'm not surprised that this is our first odd-toed ungulate because most ungulates are even-toed. Okay. So ungulates are animals with hooves. Basically, they've evolved to stand and walk on their very, very tippy toes Mm -hmm. instead of having their whole foot down on the ground. And what used to be claws with their like way back ancestors have gradually over time become into these hard casings around the toes, which is the hoof. Mm -hmm. You can see this when you look at like a horse's skeleton. Right. They're basically right up on their fingertips. Like what we would think of as fingertips or toe tips. Kind of like a ballerina's toe. Yeah. They, they're not walking around on their heels like you or I are. There's these two groups of ungulates. There's the even-toed and the odd-toed. And most of them are even-toed. So deer, pigs, cows, hippos, all that stuff. Even-toed ungulates. So basically their hoof is like split down the middle. Right. So look at your hand mm-hmm. and imagine that you were doing like the Vulcan salute. Like the Spock hand thing where you yes. like split your fingers in half basically that's kind of what it's like to have a hoof like an even-toed ungulate okay so they're splitting their weight between these two it's like their middle finger and their ring finger if you were using the analogy of a human hand right but the odd-toed ungulates have placed all of their weight onto the middle one so imagine that you were walking around on your hands with all of your weight placed on your middle finger so that's kind of like how 
the difference between like even toed and odd toed ungulates? Are all the odd toes ones that only have one? No, are there they're threes not. and fives and yes, <laughs> okay, there are. okay. Horses have just the one toe. Okay, horses also including like equines in general, right? So you've got zebras and donkeys and stuff like that. They mm-hmm. just have the one toe that's in the middle. Um, but the other two groups of odd-toed ungulates are rhinoceroses oh. and tapirs. That's it. Hmm. Those are all the odd-toed ungulates. <laughs> <laughs> are elephants ungulates? Elephants are not. No. Okay. No, because remember, they're part of that like Afrotheria group okay. where they came off of like manatees and hyraxes oh, okay, and stuff. Okay, okay. So that's weird because they look like they would be, right? Right. There's so much in common with them, but they're not. It's the weirdest thing. Yeah, horses, rhinos, and tapirs are the only odd-toed ungulates. And even though they're called odd-toed ungulates because of the way that their like weight is placed on their foot and also like what they're related to and stuff, tapirs actually on their front feet, they have four toes. <laughs> okay. Their, their back feet have three toes, but their front ones have four. I was thinking maybe it's referring to total toes, but that would always be an even number, <laughs> given an even number of legs. <laughs> true yeah no so it's it's just a funky thing like it's just the way that their hoof is like arranged yeah. and and what they're more closely related to so tapirs are more closely related to rhinos and then horses are kind of like back far they split off farther ago okay than, than tapirs and rhinos did from each other hmm. just interesting i yeah. like evolutionary history of stuff so let's rate them let's rate tapirs So our first category we rate animals on is effectiveness. This is physical adaptations to the body that let them do a good job of the things they're trying to do. I give the tapir an 8 out of 10. Okay. Pretty good. So I mentioned that they have um, four toes. and Their front feet have four toes and the back feet have three. So the toes are interesting because they're designed to spread really far out. Mm-hmm. So they kind of splay out to the sides. So this helps them like distribute their weight better so that when they're walking through this like wet mud, right? Because they're walking through these rainforests that have really wet ground. Right. So they're walking around the ground and their toes splay out and it helps them not sink as far down into the mud. Makes sense. Yeah. And they spend a lot of time in the water too. So mm-hmm. it helps them kind of get traction on the riverbed and it, it works out really well for them. Can you imagine if they were trying to like clunk around in horse hooves like in a <laughs> no. riverbed? No, it wouldn't work out very well. <laughs> Another thing that helps them out a lot is that they have this like high contrasting black and white body coloration. Mm-hmm. So I was, I saw this and I was thinking like, there's no way that can be helpful, right? It seems like to us, it's like wearing a tuxedo in the middle of like a rainforest, right? Like the black and white seems to us like that would be really not very helpful <laughs> against True. like green backdrops. But what it helps with is that it breaks up their silhouette. So it looks like two animals mm-hmm. with a gap in the middle instead of just one big animal. You need to kind of imagine when you're in like a dense forest, the light that's coming in through the canopy of the trees. Everything is kind of like dappled, I guess. Right. It's it's interesting, but it helps it helps break up their silhouette so that they can't be tracked as easily by predators. Hmm. What kind of predators are they dealing with? Out of curiosity. Tigers. Oh, okay. Yeah. And like crocodiles. I was going to say, because these, these guys are big. They're really big. Yeah, they're super <laughs> chunky. Their size really helps them out a lot because yeah. they don't really have to worry about that much, you know? And, but so when you see the baby Malayan tapirs, because I was talking about their camouflage, the baby Malayan tapirs, they don't have those solid black and white color sections. They have something so much better. Okay. <laughs> it's so much better. They're brown. They're like all brown. But they have these bright white spots and stripes. Ooh. Both. It's 
perfect. <laughs> it's adorable. And their stripes go like down the side of their body. Mm-hmm. And then they have these little white spots that have been described as watermelon-like. Ooh. They do look like a fluffy little watermelon. <laughs> it's really cute. But it helps kind of mimic the way the sunlight is coming in mm-hmm. through the leaves and the branches and stuff. Mimics that really well. So it makes them pretty hard to see. That's cool. They're also, they're runners and they're swimmers. So they're surprisingly very fast for how big they are. They're very quick. They can run real good. And they're like fantastic swimmers. They can get some serious speed through the water. We have seen the Malayan tapir at the Jacksonville Zoo swimming. Do you remember seeing that? I do. It's so cool, isn't it? Yeah. Do they have webbed toes maybe? No, not, I mean, it's not webbed. I don't think I would call them webbed. Not like a capybara. Sure. You know, it's it's more finger-like than the hooves of other ungulates. Mm-hmm. It has more sort of dexterity to it than that. Right. It just helps them a lot, like, push off against the riverbed, and they dive underwater to eat vegetation, like, off of the bottom. So they'll actually, like, dive down to the bottom of the river and eat vegetation off the bottom, and they can stand there for a few minutes. They can hold their breath for a long time, and just like elephants, they do use their trunk as a snorkel. Of course. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> Like, if you've got it sitting around, you might as well put it to good use. (laughs) It's interesting because their little snout proboscis trunk thing, Mm -hmm. uh, it's so, so, so similar to an elephant. Yeah. But they're not, like, related to elephants. It's just an interesting, like, convergent evolution sort of thing that, like, they evolved for similar purposes, right? Like, you're spending a lot of time in the water, you're yanking up leaves and grasses and stuff, just, like, similar purposes, similar form, just not quite as exaggerated as yeah. an elephant's trunk. I did give them an 8 out of 10 instead of a 2 out of 10, so I deducted like 2 points. So one of them is because they have teeny tiny little beady eyes, and they do not see very well. Oh, Yeah, sorry guys. <laughs> their eyes are so teeny. It's little itty bitty dots of their <laughs> eyes. They're so little, so they don't see very well. The, the rest of their senses are pretty good, but they don't see very well. And I also, I don't know, I took off a point because I think they could have gone harder with the trunk. <laughs> you know, like we've seen what it can do for the elephant. We've seen that like with the elephant, they can use it to like accomplish these incredible things. Mm-hmm. And the tapir just like didn't commit fully to it, you know? I think it has a difference to do between height and mass. <laughs> I'm betting. You think so? It's probably not as big a deal for a tapir to get something off the ground and oh, that yeah. kind of thing. I guess they're closer to the ground so they don't have as far to go. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't that mass doesn't really scale very well right so they scale up to the size of an elephant they're not going to have the same kind of dexterity sure but i'm thinking of like an elephant they use their trunks for so many stuff like interacting with each other reaching high up type thing yeah or even like picking up logs where they can wrap their trunk around the whole thing right Mm -hmm. so we can see that like it does some pretty impressive stuff i feel like if the tapir just really leaned into it they have a pretty impressive little trunk going on. Yeah. So that, I don't know. That's why I gave them an eight instead of 10. I think it could have, just by comparison to elephants, it's just not quite there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But that being said, they do spend more time in the water than elephants, right? So Mm -hmm. like they may be, you know, they're adapted for different purposes. I just thought, I was like, listen, if you're going to copy the elephant like that, it's kind of like when like a band covers a song that was done by like a really, really, really good artist. So you're like, mm, the original was kind of a little bit better. You know, it's like if you're going to do a cover, it's got to be really good. No. <laughs> see, now we got to look to see who evolved the trunk first. 
Oh, shoot. <laughs> I have no idea. Now we got to see who's actually the original. Oh, man, you're right. We got to see which one is the cover. <laughs> so this brings me to the next category for tapers, which is ingenuity. So for us, ingenuity is behavioral adaptations, mm-hmm. things the animal is like doing with their body. I give the taper a seven out of 10, maybe even verging on a six. We don't like know a ton about their habits in the wild because they're so secretive and shy. And if you if they see you, they will run, right? Like they're not going to stick around for long enough for you to be able to really see what they're doing. Mm-hmm. There's not like a ton of information on what they do in the wild that they've been kept in captivity a lot. So people kind of know what they do in captivity, which is not always the exact same as what you're going to see them do in the wild. But anyway, so tapers are really solitary. They just hang out alone. They don't like to travel in herds. They're really shy. They have a tendency to bolt when they're frightened, but also when they're threatened by a predator, if they're really scared, they jump into the water. Oh, yeah, Which, that's pretty clever. I think they sure. know that like they're they know they're really good in the water. Yeah. So if they're being chased by something, although that would not help them if they're being chased by a crocodile or if in South America being a jaguar. Chased, yeah. No, <laughs> jaguar's video- like oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's over, Anakin. <laughs> I have the wet ground. <laughs> Don't try it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 only going to be helpful against like specific predators. I know tigers can swim, right? But they're not yeah. as good at swimming as tapirs are. So right. for this tapir, jumping in the water is a pretty good idea. Mm-hmm. This is this is really funny. They communicate with each other with a really unexpected sound. Oh boy. What do you think they would sound like? Is it a trumpety sound? I would love it if it was. You see that nose and you think that they would make like a honking sound, yeah, right? Yeah. It's a whistle. Oh. They whistle at each other. With so what where where does the whistle get produced? Is it in their nose or their yeah, mouth? Yeah, it's okay. like it, I think it's kind of like the dick dick. Oh. You remember okay. how yeah, it makes yeah. that kind of like whistly sound? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like a really high pitched whistle. It's kind of funny. Hmm. For such a big, huge animal, and they make a little, like, whistle at each other? <laughs> I find that really charming. <laughs> Apparently, they do this back and forth to each other. If you're not familiar with it and you don't see them, would you think it's a bird making the sound? Is, oh. it, is that what it sounds like? I would say that if I heard the sound, I would not think it was a bird, but that's probably because we don't have birds here that make that sound. Okay. I don't know if they have birds where they live that make this sound. Hmm. So, I don't know. I don't think I would mistake it for a bird, but okay. maybe there's something that lives there that sounds like it. I was just thinking it'd be interesting if that's what you're expecting, and out comes this 700-pound. <laughs> just whistling. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think it's kind of funny, that juxtaposition between, like, this big hulking animal and, like, making a little, like... <laughs> yeah. It doesn't sound like that, but oh, okay. you know, I'm just whistling. So, this is also another really funny thing that they do. They communicate also with smell by, like, marking mm-hmm. their territory and, like, you know, smelling each other's pheromones and hormones and stuff like that, which is to be expected, right? They got a big honker right on their face. Like, yeah. they're going to be using it a lot. It's really good at sniffing. So, in fact, when they're trying to smell something extra good, so, like, they're trying to, like, really zoom in on a smell, they do this thing where they curl their lips and nose backwards up like up away from 
their face, I guess. Mm-hmm. So what it's doing is it's opening up these ducts in their mouth that lets the smell basically go like directly to the gland that is like processing them in the brain. Huh. It's like letting them smell even harder. It's like they're like enhanced. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. zooming in on a smell. So the the face that they make when they're doing this is really, really funny. And it's called the flame and response. So you may have heard of this because other animals do this too. Cats do it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if our cat has done it, but sometimes you'll see funny videos of cats. If they smell something that has a really strong smell, they'll kind of like make this face where they pull their lips back. Huh. Have you seen them do that? No. And they're they're not like growling or anything, but they're making a face like like a stank face. <laughs> and horses do it too, where they will kind of like curl their lips back. In horses, it looks a lot more like it does in tapers because of that similar sort of like facial structure. Sure. Um, but in tapirs, it just looks especially bizarre because of their like big, long, floppy nose. <laughs> like it mm-hmm. just looks ridiculous. But it's just a way for them to like enhance their own sense of smell. Huh. Yeah, it's called the flame in response, which is spelled F L E H M E N. Is that named after a person or an organ? Probably. Maybe? I don't know, man. <laughs> I remember hearing about it when like, I heard of like horses doing it, but okay. lots of animals do it. It's just really funny. I thought it was an interesting uh, addition. Last category for the tapir is aesthetics. I give them a good solid eight out okay. of ten. Yeah. This is the cutest tapir, in my opinion. All right. I like the other ones. The other ones are fine. They're cute. This one is really like sleek and streamlined, though. And Ooh. I like that. Yeah. I, I like that look. It has panda colors. That's pretty good. I like their feet. I'm not actually crazy about the short trunk. I wish it had either been longer like an elephant's trunk or shorter like a pig's snout. But that like in between just feels really awkward to me. Yeah. Personally. It looks like drowsy. I actually have notes on drowsy in here. Oh, very good. I was going to say that it looks to me like the camel things from Star Wars, from the prequels, the ones that are on Tatooine that have the floppy nose. They're called EOPs. You know what I'm talking about? No. They look like Saiga antelope, how they oh, have the weird yeah, nose. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what the tapir's face reminds me of. Okay. But yes, okay, so they do look like drowsy. And that's because drowsy is based on the Malayan tapir. So it has the, the face with yeah. the nose. And then even in the body coloration, it has that sort of like... It's like a yellow color, but then the back half of it is like dark brown. Yeah. For those unfamiliar, we are talking about a Pokemon. This is a Pokemon. Drowsy. Yes. The Pokemon Drowsy, to be more specific, it's not just based on the Malayan tapir. It's a reference to a character in Japanese folklore mm-hmm. that originated in Chinese folklore. Um, but in Japanese folklore, it's called Baku. Mm-hmm. And in folklore, it's a chimera. So it's made of a, all these different like parts of an animal, most notably the head of an elephant and the paws of a tiger. Mm, so okay. when you hear that description, you can kind of see how you get tapered yeah. from that. And I've seen this in other, I'll, I'll say it, anime, mm-hmm. where this, you know. This <laughs> <laughs> you were like, I'm not afraid to say it. I watch anime. I was going to say other Japanese artistic works. Nope, uh, no. nope, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> no, other anime where they've had creatures and stuff based on that same kind of folklore. Yes. Um, you can you can see where the tapir comparison comes from. Yeah. In more like modern depictions, Baku just like is a tapir. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so Baku eats nightmares. So that that is referenced heavily in the Pokemon Drowsy because Drowsy, the Pokemon, resembles a tapir mm-hmm. and is also known for a move combo of hypnosis that puts your enemy to sleep and then dream eater which does damage to sleeping enemies yes it's a devastating combo (laughs) i abused it heavily (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, to wrap things up for the Malayan tapir, their conservation status is endangered, according to the IUCN. Oh. The tapir's biggest threat by far is habitat loss. Okay. So the tapir lives in these areas where a lot of the forests, a lot of the rainforests that they live in have been converted to these monocrop plantations. Yeah. So have you heard of like this problem with palm oil plantations where they'll take big swaths of rainforest tear all the trees down and then just plant palm oil trees yeah you hear about this a lot when you're talking about orangutans yes actually um a few episodes ago we talked to dr laura durgovich who did talk about orangutans and talked about the palm oil farming's effect on this area so this affects orangutans but it also affects tapirs same area then i guess yeah. Sort of. Yeah, same like general area. So low biodiversity in this area. So where you've got like, it's all the same plant over and over again, mm-hmm. instead of it being lots of different types of plants, makes the ecosystem really unhealthy. It's not good for the animals that live there. And then that leaves the tapir without the sort of vegetation it needs to survive and thrive. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the tapir needs a lot of like shrubs and grasses. Like you said, they can't get that high up. So they need a lot of grass and low-lying plants. So when they don't have that low vegetation, they don't have anything to eat. So Mm -hmm. then they kind of suffer for it. When we talked to Dr. Durgovich, her advice for this is just to be mindful of the sort of products that you're buying. If they use palm oil in the product, try to make sure that they're like sustainably sourced. Right. And that you're buying products that use sustainably sourced palm oil because these sort of plantations are... Uh, not very good news for a lot of animals that live in these areas, especially Malayan tapirs, which are super cool and super charismatic dudes. Mm. So, you know, just try to be mindful of that. Support the tapirs. Be kind to the earth <laughs> that they need to live in. Right. Yeah, that's the Malayan tapir. Well, thank you, babe. Thank you. Hey, y'all, before we move on, I'd like to say thank you to our patrons on Patreon who support us and keep the show going. This week, I'd like to extend our gratitude to the Mad Scientist podcast, Randall Beeman, Britt Vickstrom, Jacob Schick, Sarah Peterson, Dalton Weeks, April Kamik, Vikram Baliga, Julie Gilson, Paul Chomo, Christina Sanders, and Brianna Feinberg. Thank you all so much for being there for us. We could not do it without you. Okay, babe. What animal do you have for us, for our innocent, kind listeners today? You love them. You want them. <laughs> I got them. It's the Lone Star Tick. Okay. Let's <laughs> do it. Scientific name, Amblyoma americanum. This species was submitted by Caitlin Kish via email. Thanks, Caitlin. Thank you. And my information will be primarily coming from the University of Florida's Department of Entomology and Nematology, found at entnemdept.ufl.edu. I love their website name. Yeah. So many dots. (laughs) So yeah, let me just describe what a tick is, what it looks like for those that maybe aren't as familiar. They're brown, they have eight legs, they have a long mouth part, and in this species, females have a white spot near the center of the back which is where they get their name, whereas males have white streaks and spots around the outside portions of the top of its body. Interesting. I would have thought that the Lone Star part of their name was like a reference to them maybe living in Texas. No. No? (laughs) (laughs) Although they can be found in Texas. Okay. In terms of size, adults are three to four millimeters in length. They're little. Around an eighth of an inch. Are these similar to like the kind of ticks we have to deal with on a pretty regular basis? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Location, they are commonly found in the eastern, southeastern, and midwest USA. So they are in Texas then? Yes. 
in the more eastern part of it, I believe. Okay. Uh, they belong to the taxonomic family Ixodidae, which is one of three families of ticks and belongs to the arachnida class, along with spiders, scorpions, that kind of thing. Okay, so they're arachnids. They are arachnids. Okay. <laughs> the arachnid family is abundant with maligned creatures. I feel like this is the one that kind of gets beat up on the most, yeah. PR-wise. Yeah, it might also belong to that Just class. all of the commonly referred to as, you know, icky, creepy <laughs> crawlies. Yep, so yeah, I'm just going to jump right into our uh, ratings here. First up, effectiveness. I'm giving an 8 out of 10 for effectiveness. That's pretty good. It is. So first and foremost, parasitism. Let's get into <laughs> parasitism. <laughs> So these little guys, they're bloodsuckers. Yes, they are. (laughs) So they will affix themselves to the skin of their hosts to suck blood from them. It's not great. Yes. If you've had it happen (laughs) to you, you know what I'm talking about. It's not good at all. This species' hosts include humans, domesticated animals like cows and dogs, ground-dwelling birds like turkeys, wild turkeys, and small and large wild mammals like squirrels and white-tailed deer. Okay. Pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, anything they can get on, basically. They're not picky, huh? Yeah. Uh, they're also known as the turkey tick. Turkey tick? Yes. That's way more fun to say. <laughs> and way more, way less misleading about yeah. their geographic distribution. <laughs> uh, so they have mouth parts that pierce and suck. And they also secrete a kind of glue that affixes them to the host. Do they really? Yes. That's why they're so hard to pull out. (laughs) Right? Yeah. They're actually glued on there. (laughs) A little bit, yeah. It's diabolical. Mm -hmm. They said, boy, if you're going to try to rip me off, I'm taking a little bit of you with me. Yeah. So for those that are not familiar, maybe don't have to deal with ticks, uh, there are many methods on how to remove them. And they have to be fairly specific because if you remove the tick incorrectly, such as tearing the body off from its head, um, you can risk infection with the head remaining still in your skin. All sorts of bad stuff. Yes. Next thing I want to talk about is their three-stage life cycle, because they're known as three-host ticks. Three-host? Yes. Huh. So in their larva stage, they are 0.5 to 1 millimeter long and have six legs. Oh. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm not going to use an imperial unit because we don't have appropriate units for that small. (laughs) Mm. Must be nice. (laughs) I'm over talking about one thirty seconds of an inch. (laughs) (laughs) And so the larva will feed on its first host for four to nine days and drops off. And after three to four weeks more, it molts into the nymphal stage. I love the word nymph. Yes. Love anything that has a nymph stage. So its second stage is a nymph. It is one and a half to two and a half millimeters long. And now it has eight legs at this point. And it can survive up to six months without feeding. If they could just keep not (laughs) doing that. If they could just keep that energy. Right. But when it does find its host, second host, it feeds for three to eight days, drops off and molts into the adult stage after five to six weeks. So it has to pick a new host for each one of these life stages? It has to feed until it's full, basically fall off and hide while it grows and molts. Right? Okay. It yeah. can't just stay stuck on while it like grows there's, up. There's no, there's no benefit. and It's just risking you know, the host becoming aware of you. Okay, right? sure. So yeah, in the adult stage, it can survive eight months to two years without feeding. See, it's like y'all are capable. <laughs> You're perfectly capable of just not. Right. Not sucking blood. Oh, you can. 
Um, but they need to, to continue on with their life cycle. So mating occurs on host, actually. Does it really? It does. That's disgusting. <laughs> Both males and females must feed before being able to reproduce. Okay. I mean, you got to have dinner first, right? <laughs> Go out for a nice dinner. <laughs> so in the male's case, they need it to be able to produce spermatophore and then um, the female, of course, to produce eggs. Okay. So females get much bigger after feeding. So if you're familiar with or seen pictures of a very engorged tick. They're that, huge. Yeah, that's what we're talking about here, the females. They're enormous. Yep. Females will emit a pheromone that signals males to detach from the host to mate with them. Oh, so she, okay, so she stays latched on. Yes. He unhooks himself. Yes. And comes over to her. Yes, to mate. You come here often, baby? <laughs> says, hey, mama. So the male might mate with several females before dying. So that's its whole thing. Good for him. <laughs> and then after mating, females will continue to feed more, a few more days, become engorged, drop off, and they lay around 5,000 eggs in the soil. That's too many. Then they die. <laughs> My work here is done. Yes. So that is the life cycle of this tick. That is more interesting than I thought it was. Right? <laughs> huh. Did you happen to see any pictures of them when they're little babies? Yeah. Is it cute? Uh. Okay. <laughs> I was really holding out hope. <laughs> Not really. I was hoping that we, we would have a shot at redemption there. <laughs> Are they venomous at all? Is there like a venom component to them? No. No. But the next thing I want to talk about with their effectiveness is the spread of bloodborne diseases. Okay, so yeah, I do want to know about this because I want to know if this offers any sort of benefit whatsoever to the tick itself. No, no it doesn't, and it's where my minus two points is coming from. That's, that's a lose-lose, <laughs> right? Because generally speaking, the parasite does not want to harm the host, right? Right. Well, I mean, it doesn't want to necessarily, but like yeah. parasitism is like, right. by nature, like you're harming the host. I know it's not. There's not anything they can do about it. They did not make this choice. <laughs> well, when we get to ingenuity, there might be something that explains that a little better. Ooh. But for now, I want to talk about diseases. Yeah. The most interesting one that is associated with this tick is called the alpha gal syndrome. Alpha gal. Yes. You've heard of alpha males. <laughs> Move aside. There's an alpha gal. <laughs> so alpha gal um, is short for galactose alpha one three galactose. Uh, which is a sugar molecule found in most mammals, except for humans and old world primates. So here's where this becomes a problem. It can cause people to have an allergy to red meats. This is the most random thing I've ever heard in my life. Yes. Why, did, were you able to find anything about why that is? We don't really know. Okay. So this tick can pick up this uh, sugar molecule. And in some people, you know, when they come in contact with this sugar molecule, they have an immune response that makes it so when they eat red meat or other products that are made from mammals, they will have an allergic reaction. This is like if you've ever tried to like, I know you have, but for people <laughs> listening, if you've ever tried to write a code... And then you change like one little like character in mm -hmm. the entire code. And all of a sudden, like the whole thing shuts down and won't operate anymore. <laughs> it's like you never know. Like one little thing, one little sugar molecule will right. just like it completely make you unable to eat beef. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Um, they don't really know a whole lot about it. It's a fairly new thing. So according to MayoClinic.org. 
ticks that cause alpha-gal syndrome are believed to carry alpha-gal molecules from the blood of the animals they commonly bite, such as cows and sheep. When a carrier tick bites a human, the tick injects alpha-gal into the person's body. For unknown reasons, some people have such a strong immune response to these molecules that they can no longer eat red meat or products made from mammals without a mild to severe allergic reaction. People who are exposed to many tick bites over time may develop more severe symptoms. Man, that is so wild. Right? And you could... You could have no idea. Well, here's the crazy thing, too. So when this happens, the allergic reactions might not occur until several hours after ingesting red meat. So you might not even make the connection. Mm. Like you have a steak for dinner and then you go into anaphylactic shock during the night. Yeah, that could be really weird. And if you don't have any reason to think like, oh, yeah, maybe I'm just suddenly allergic to meat now or red meat now, you know, like you would have no reason to put those two together. Right. So from a disease perspective, it's interesting because the number of reported cases has shot up a lot in the past decade. Really? Like a lot. Wow. So it's on the tens of thousands right now. Oh, my God. And it's not just this tick. And it's not just the United States. There are other ticks in other parts of the world that do, that this happens with, too. But that's what this one is most well known for. That's so interesting. Yeah. I wonder if it's just that this is happening more now or just that it's able to be recorded more now, right? Like, maybe we just, like, know what's going on and now. And people know. Cause, right. Because before, it might have just been, oh, there was an allergic reaction. We don't know what happened, and that's all we're going to say about that. Right. But now they think, like, oh, now this is a thing. So now that's something they have to look at, which if they know to look for it, they can identify it. Because mm-hmm. they're going to test for other more common food allergies. You can see that those are th- those came back negative, and then they look for this specific one, and oh, that, there it is. Yeah. So there's no treatment other than avoiding red meats and animal products. Oh, man. Um, right now they think it'll go away on its own eventually, but they don't really know. It's huh. It's not everyone. That's so mysterious. Yeah. The beauty of nature. <laughs> do these ticks also carry Lyme disease? They do not. They don't, is, really. Which is my next one. Oh. It's really surprising, right? Yeah. Um, so, no, they don't They don't spread Lyme disease. That's usually what you think of when you think of ticks. You mm-hmm. think of Lyme disease. And rightly so, but not for this one. So, Lyme disease, in the U.S. at least, is usually spread by the black-legged tick, also known as the deer tick. Okay. Yeah. All right, all right. The deer tick is the one that I know about. Yeah. With the Lone Star, it's... Saliva actually kills the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. No, yes, really. Yep. <laughs> so it's not that it doesn't come into contact with that bacteria. It's just it doesn't survive being transmitted through the tick's mouth. That's really interesting. Yeah. Why just that one? Everybody should have figured this out. <laughs> right. Like all of the ticks need to get their act together. <laughs> But yeah, that stuff about the saliva is actually from a 2018 article in the Journal of Medical Entomology titled Amblyoma Americanum, Ticks Are Not Vectors of the Lyme Disease Agent Borrelia burgdorferi, a review of the evidence. And the Borrelia burgdorferi is the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. Okay. So Um, this tick just has that one figured out. Right. It got their number. (laughs) Cannot be bothered. So that was a more recent discovery because for a long time they thought this tick could spread Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. Because there were older studies where they thought they detected Lyme disease, the Lyme disease bacteria in Lone Star ticks, but they were actually um, detecting a different bacteria. Wow. Ticks are wild. And a lot of times people don't even think about there being so many different kinds of ticks. Right. You know, like you think just a tick is a tick. That's just all it is. So you see tick, you think Lyme disease. Yeah. Um, But a lot of people don't realize that there are lots of different different types of ticks. But in the same way, there are lots of ticks. There are also lots of other diseases. <laughs> True. So while it can't spread Lyme disease, it can spread other diseases um, like ehrlichiosis, 
Heartland virus, STARI, which is short for Southern Tick-Associated Rash Illness, and Tularemia, according to the CDC. So all around bad news, not something you want to get. Yeah. Ticks are not super friendly with the human body. (laughs) Yeah. So that wraps up my effectiveness. They're great at ruining our day. Yep. I only took off points because of the harm to the host that they can pose. So on to ingenuity. I'm just going to give a five out of 10. And the only reason I'm giving any points at all (laughs) is because of how they find hosts. It's called questing. Questing. Yes. Wow. So the larva and nymphs will climb up on something like a blade of grass and wait for a host to come by to grasp onto. It will then find a preferred feeding spot on the host. So it doesn't just stick itself in wherever it happens to land on a person or an animal. It'll first crawl around to find a good spot. What determines a good spot? Um, in humans, that's usually going to be uh, the groin area, armpits. Crevices. Uh, in between fingers and toes. Sure, like creases and yeah, stuff. Yeah. I've had a tick on the back of my knee. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Which is right in a, it's in a little crevice spot in a little nook. Yeah. Have you had ticks? I think so. I know my brother did once. I think I did once as well. I only knew about the one that was on the back of my knee. Yeah. And unfortunately, I didn't know it was there. And I had an itch on the back of my knee and I went to scratch it and I scraped the tick off. Oh. By accident. (laughs) So the thing you said earlier about not (laughs) doing that. Yeah. (laughs) I did that. I was fine. I didn't sure. get an infection. I mean, the most the most simple way of doing it is just using tweezers. Um, I've heard to light them on fire. There's that. And I've also heard of using rubbing alcohol. Mm. It makes them lo- loosen their grip. So I don't know if that's true. That's just... One of those things, you know. <laughs> I'm sure with other places in the world where you spend a lot of time outside with ticks, I'm yeah. sure they have their own, you know, tick removal right. remedies. Um, I, the one I've always heard is to use a, a lighter. Yeah. Like hold a lighter underneath it. and Yeah, if you're pretty confident about that. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, no, you got a tick bite and a burn. <laughs> <laughs> Have you thought about applying fire to your wounds? I've also heard what people do sometimes is take a, a match, light it, blow it out, and immediately touch the hot end to the tick. It's a way better idea. Yeah. We were using <laughs> Bic lighters. <laughs> <laughs> right. But anywho. That's all I got for ingenuity. Okay, that's fair. And aesthetics, one out of ten. Really? <laughs> Nothing? It's got the stylish, distinctive white spot, I guess. Yeah. But other than that, it's all bad. It's it's really, they have a very strange layout to their legs, yeah. right? It They look they look almost crab-like, I think. A little bit. Yeah. Kind of like a crab with a big badonkadonk. <laughs> <laughs> Thick yeah. crab. Yeah, not great. <laughs> Um, so that's that for aesthetics. I did not look up the conservation status. <laughs> yeah, we really need to <laughs> save the tick. I'm sure they're struggling out there. Yeah. Oh, and man. the Lone Star Tick. Thanks. I do feel like I understand them quite a bit better. <laughs> I, I did. I think the, you know, knowing about their life cycle is really interesting. Yeah. I guess I had never really thought about, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't even conceptualize they're even being baby ticks. Right. Like, I didn't even think of them as even having babies. <laughs> so, oh, I, I meant to come back to this, but, you know, you were talking about, you know, why do they have to, they, they can spend so much time not feeding, mm-hmm. right? And that's because, you know, they're small. They don't have very good means of locomotion. So they basically are born in an area and then they just have to hope something comes by in that general vicinity to get <laughs> onto. So that's why they're able to wait for so long. Cause <laughs> oh, because they're basically just chilling. Yeah, yeah. 
like hoping something yes <laughs> wanders by but boy when something does though they i mean you you get a good walk through the woods mm. if you're not wearing bug spray you could come back covered well when it's when they're in the larva stage too if you find one you're probably going to find thousands of others in that general vicinity that's true because that means eggs were hatched in that general Ugh, area so many of them yeah now i would like to loop back to the opossum Yes. We talked about a few episodes ago. Opossums eat so many ticks. Yes. Tons and tons and tons and tons of ticks. But they're also listed as a host for these ticks. I mean, I'm sure that, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're going around. <laughs> if they're running around rooting around in ticks, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm sure they're going to chomp them up when they can. But yeah. if a tick gets on a spot where the opossum can't, you know, nibble it off or something right. like that, it's probably just going to have itself a little field day. Yep. Well, thanks for that. No problem. That wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Sure. It really wasn't. It's like, it's icky, yeah, that they like will latch onto you and suck your blood. That's pretty gross. Yeah. I mean, the most disturbing pictures are, you know, when they're very engorged or when there's like an animal or something that has a lot. That's that, true. At, at the same time. That's true. Oh my gosh. I hate pictures of like, especially if it's a small animal. Yeah. So that the ticks, like the engorged ticks on it look really big mm-hmm. by comparison. That is pretty gross. Yeah. And this one doesn't list them, but you know, you, you'll find reptiles with ticks as well. Even snakes. Yeah. you And they'll get like mites and stuff mm-hmm. on there. Right on there. We were watching a, I was watching a nature documentary the other night with uh, Chelsea Connor. And um, it was one of those like super high definition 4k nature documentaries yeah and they had this super like close-up shot of this really beautiful lizard and there's this huge mite right on his face oh no <laughs> i was like why y'all gotta call out the lizard like that <laughs> enhance you know a lot of times i feel like some animals are like like when i talked about like cockroaches or spiders or something mm-hmm. it's like a lot of animals get that sort of ick factor that's not you know deserved or it's like you know they're not really going to do anything to you ticks will get you <laughs> yeah yeah and i thought i would find something talking about you know making it so that you don't feel their bite i couldn't find anything like it's it seems to be true that in most cases you won't notice them bite you right but i couldn't find out why no like anesthetic or yeah. something i know i've heard of some leeches like yeah. I think leeches have something like that and mosquitoes but. i think to a degree have like a very mild anesthetic yeah. that they use so that you don't like smack them while they're feeding right, right? but ticks yeah i've like i said like I, I didn't know that i had a tick bite and i that's typically what you hear is that people find ticks on them it's yeah. not like oh my gosh the you know i i felt it biting me it was just like you you like you have to yeah. check your body for ticks yeah. to even know that you have them yeah so if you live in an area or if you find yourself doing activities that would take you through woodlands and such you know take precautions bug spray cover yourself up i've even seen people who go through tall grasses and stuff they'll like put a wrapping of duct tape up like halfway up their their calf so that so that um you know we were talking about ticks will will get on you but try to find a good place to bite so they'll get stuck on the duct tape trying to crawl up your leg (gasps) that's pretty clever And then when you're done doing that activity, it's best to go take a shower to rinse off and make sure you're checking all those crevices for ticks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have a friend, a really close friend, (laughs) check all your nooks and crannies. (laughs) Isn't there a country song about, I want to check you for ticks? I don't know. There is. Okay. I'm almost certain there is. Okay. (laughs) I'll have to take your word for it. There's a country song about like, he's like trying to flirt with somebody and he says something about, I want to check you for ticks. How romantic. I know. (laughs) Good job, babe. Thanks. Thanks for talking about ticks. Anytime. Well, thank you everybody who has joined us today and in previous days. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. 
If you like what you've heard, uh, please leave us a good review on whatever it is that you're using to listen to us, like Apple or Podchaser or whatever. It just makes us happy. We just like it. It's nice. It is. (laughs) So leave some nice words for us. You can also connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have an animal that you want us to talk about, you can get those to me. My email address is ellen at justthezooofus.com. And finally, I would like to thank Louis Zong for letting us use his track Adventuring off of his album B-Sides for our theme music. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And thank you, Christian, for telling us all about ticks today. That was great. (laughs) I really appreciate that. It is my duty. (laughs) This has been kind of a return to your brand, right? You did some cute stuff in the past, and then we're bringing it back to the gross factor. It'll be in the Hall of Fame with the botfly. The botfly was way nastier yeah, you're right. than this. <laughs> but this is like a return to form for Christian. You're, you, you're bringing all of the nasty to the table. I appreciate that about you. Yeah, yeah. No one asked for it, but here I am. <laughs> it's called balance. <laughs> I guess Caitlin asked for it. That's true. Caitlin did specifically ask for it. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, baby. Bye. Bye. Bye.